Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there in cyberspace. This is Dr. Simon, and I do a show and have been doing it since 2007 called The Stories We Live By, and today I want to talk about stories of education. Good education, bad education, ugly education. That was the title of a cowboy film. Anyway, the the impetus the stimulation to do this particular broadcast, and I'm always looking for interesting stuff to excite my, my thinking and give me a direction, came from an article online by a Dr. Wendy Bradshaw, who is an adjunct professor of Mercy College, who has some followers on social media and wrote a really passionate, wonderful article that I'm going to read to you which is her re- resignation f- from the school board that she taught, which was Polk County, Florida. So I'm going to read that to start, and then I'm going to discuss uh, why I, I uh, understand why she left, and I will also be kind of critical that she did leave, because when people of her caliber uh, do leave, it is a loss to the schools, it is a loss to education, it is a loss to certainly a big loss to the children that she would be interacting with. To the school board of Polk County, Florida, I love teaching. I love seeing my students' eyes light up when they grasp a new concept and their bodies straighten with pride and satisfaction when they persevere and accomplish a personal goal. I love watching them practice being good citizens by working with their peers to puzzle out problems, negotiate roles, and share their experiences and understandings of the world. This is a wonderful sentence to me that will appeal to liberals because she's talking about the individual and conservatives because she's talking about being a good citizen and being involved with others. I wanted nothing more than to serve the students of this county, my home, by teaching students and preparing new teachers to teach students well. To this end, I obtained my undergraduate, master's, and doctoral degrees in the field of education. I spent countless hours after school and on weekends poring over research so that I would know and be able to implement the most appropriate and effective methods with my students and encourage their learning and positive attitudes towards learning. I spent countless hours in my classroom conferencing with families and other teachers. By the way, every time I hear some, somebody who says, teachers shouldn't be paid more because they get the summers off, I want to boff. Listen to what this woman does, and she does. She works as much as anybody working in a long and hard as anybody in a corporation. I spent countless hours reviewing data. I am excellent at it, and even by the flawed metrics used up to this point, every evaluation I received rated me as highly effective. Like many other teachers across the nation, I have become more and more disturbed by the misguided reforms taking place which are robbing my students of a developmentally appropriate education. Developmentally appropriate practice is the bedrock upon which early childhood education best practices are based and has actively and, and has actively forcing teachers to engage in practices which are not only ineffective but actively harmful to child development and the learning process. 
I am absolutely willing to back up these statements with literature from the research base, but I doubt that it will be asked for. Now, facts and research are currently out. Politics and emotion are currently in. However, I must be honest. This letter is also deeply personal. I cannot justify making students cry anymore. They cry with frustration as they are asked to attempt tasks well out of their zone of proximal development. And if you don't know what that means, by the end of this hour, you will know what it means because it's a critical concept. They cry as they handshake, trying to use an antiquated computer mouse on a 10-year-old desktop computer, which they, have li- which they have little experience with, and as, as the computer lab is always closed for testing. Their shoulders slump with defeat as they are put in front of poorly written tests that they cannot read but must attempt. Their eyes fill with tears as they hunt for letters they have only recently learned so they can type in responses with little hands which are too small to span the keyboard. The children don't only cry. Some misbehave so that they will be the, quote, bad kid, end quote, not the, quote, stupid kid, end quote, or because their little bodies just can't sit quietly anymore, or because they don't know the social rules of school and there is no time to teach them. My master's degree work focused on behavior disorders, so I can say with confidence it is not the children who are disordered. The disorder is in the system which requires them to attempt curriculum and demonstrate behaviors far beyond what is appropriate for their age. The disorder is in the the disorder is in the system which boss teaches from differentiating instruction meaningfully, which threatens disciplinary action if they decide their students need a five-minute break from a difficult concept or to extend the lesson, which is exceptionally engaging. Interesting, just to me add, teachers, if they have to go to the bathroom, have to hold it. Many, many preschool and, and teachers of a primary school have urinary tract infections because they have to take their class to go to the bathroom with them and line them up outside the bathroom as they go and urinate or do whatever they have to do uh, because there is nobody in our educational system to allow the teacher time to go to the bathroom. The disorder is in a system which values the scores on on regimented to the minute and punished if they deviate. The disorder is in the system which values the scores on wildly inappropriate assessments more than teaching students in a meaningful and a research-based manner. In June 8, 2005, my life changed when I gave birth to my daughter. I remember cradling her in the hospital on our first night together and thinking, In five years, you will be in kindergarten and will go to school with me. That thought should have brought me joy, but instead it brought me dread. I will not subject my child to this disordered system, and I can no longer in good conscience be a part of it myself. Please accept my resignation from Polk County Public Schools. Best, Wendy Bradshaw, Ph.D. I'm sorry Wendy left the school system. Uh, I am upset that she left because I've never met a teacher at any grade level who felt they could deal effectively with their students within the systems that we now have that are created by politicians and in this case created by the test makers which make a fortune of money on these tests and control the politicians who seek their money for their re-election because uh, that becomes uh, the person, the people who define what education should be. The politicians who run education 
are the ones in control. Below them are the administrators. Below them are other administrators, a whole hierarchy. And the last people who have anything to say about curriculum and how to be teachers are people like Wendy, who should be, along with her colleagues, that she would help understand the process of education that would be good education. And again, the word good is my value, because the word good or bad is my value, is anybody's value. Uh, uh, morally, the appropriate education, the one that you want to see, uh, and uh, defined as she would in uh, scientific an understanding of child development, an understanding of, of uh, the proper way to individualize and deal with each child who is an individual and not simply the member of a class, which almost invariably is too large for the individualization to take place. Uh, one of the quotes that was on the... Um, on the uh, Democratic, the Republican debate, the clown, the Republican clowns, who, if one of them becomes president, will have much to say about how education uh, should be done without any teaching experience or without any effective idea of how to make a school and a classroom a place where children can love learning and become good citizens and creative citizens who will be an asset to their own lives, to their families, and to the country they live in, was Marco Rubio. And he made the statement, welders make more money than philosophers. We need more welders and less philosophers. Uh, Walker, in, in, I think it's Wisconsin, the governor of Wisconsin, says much the same thing. And given the obscene cost of education today, we turned our school systems into training grounds for individuals who will have a skill to earn a living but have no real philosophy of life or see philosophy as something that's totally wasted. And that is a tragedy because there is no reason for a welder to enjoy his life and earn a living and not be philosophical and not be an individual who can think outside the box, who can think philosophically and have a self that understands his place in the larger scheme of things and enjoy his life because he can think through and have a larger ish, uh, way of seeing his life, his family, his love, uh, his, his creativity, and not simply be a welder. Uh, I've had three toilet bowls in my house that have been driving me crazy. And I went online uh, because I realized I could not really fix them myself. I went online, I found a plumber, uh, online, who was part of Angie's List, and I figured, well, maybe Angie's List is legitimate. And I called the plumber in after buying replacement parts for my um, toilets. I bought all of the tool, all of the things that would need to replace all of the the pieces in the toilet. I don't know much about toilets. I know very little about plumbing. I can't get on my hands and knees any longer as an old man with bad knees in order to uh, take out the parts of the toilet, uh, lift the, 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 the uh, tub in the back, uh, the tank in the back. So I called in this young man, and he came in. He was an extremely pleasant, extremely bright um, he was part of a group of plumbers that started as childhood friends and now are incredibly busy and make a really fine living. This young man does not have to go to college. He never had to go to college. Um, and many of the people who are now going to college to get a degree would rather be working with their hands 
on jobs that will not disappear, electricians, welders, plumbers. These are things that require human judgment, and people will not lose their jobs over a, a, a machine that will do the plumbing. Well, anyway, he came in, and he looked, and he said, you know, you bought too much stuff. You bought all the replacement parts. I only need to change each particular part in each uh, tank. It'll take me about uh, 20 minutes, 15 minutes a, a tank. And he charged $95 for labor and the initial cost of coming into the house. And in about 35 minutes, after an interesting set of discussions with him, which I've had with a lot of people who have come into my house who work with their hands and are happy to do so. Uh, he left, had a $139 bill and three well-working toilets. This is a lucky man. He found his place in life. He enjoys his place in life. He doesn't plan on getting rich. He doesn't have to be rich. What he does is a service that is appreciated and paid for, and he can live with his family, and he can make a living, and he can do his life's work and be a philosopher because this young man, who was in his late 20s, I assume, maybe early 30s, had a good philosophical view of his life. One can be a plumber and one could be philosophical, but one needs an education, particularly in one's early childhood, that doesn't crush the desire to learn, crush the desire to be better at whatever one is interested in, socially, psychologically, etc. So, let me talk a little bit about what I think could create good education. I will don't believe it'll ever happen. It would cost money. And the last thing that our society seems to want to do is put the necessary resources in to create school systems based upon good, sound, psychological and scientific principles that deal with each student as an individual living human being rather than as a class in which individuality is lost. Um, I don't think my wife continued to teach after this particular terrible testing, which was created, I believe, in George Bush's era, era, in which they wanted to understand why American students are not doing well and instituted these awful tests which understandably more and more parents are opting out of, and I wish more and more parents would opt out so that the system would collapse, but another system would replace it in which teachers, well-trained teachers, interacting with psychologists and people like Wendy Bradshaw, would be able to create class sizes and systems of education that makes sense with what we know about the learning of children and the development of children. So, let me start with children. Interesting fact, we are born one at a time, occasionally two at a time, rarely more than three at a time. We are born to parents, if we're lucky, who love us, who would die for us, who recognize unconsciously that their genes are in us, and therefore we are extensions of them, and would do anything for us to develop and become human beings that uh, will make them proud and will make us happy. The Constitution of the United States says we all have the right to be happy. Rather than have property, the original fight in Congress was life, liberty, and property, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and happiness fortunately and happily won. I used to ask my students, 
Why do you think childhood takes so long? Why do human beings have the longest childhood of any animal? That's a question that took me many years to come up with. came to me one day while I was teaching a course in human growth and development. And of course, the unthought about answers were because it takes us a long time to grow up. And I said, no, reverse it. Dear hearts, the long time to grow up is created by evolution. Why is it necessary for us to have such a long childhood, much longer than any animal? The only animal that has a cl- as, almost as close, well, not quite as close a childhood, are monkeys, the ones who are the closest to us. And I would not give them the answer, and after a couple of days in each class, depending upon how uh, they struggled with this question, and many of them did because it intrigued them, somebody came up with the answer uh, that was close to the one I was looking for, which was, in order to become an effective human being, there is so much to learn that we have to have a long childhood. I am of the opinion that as our society becomes more and more complex, and I have studied, I've discussed this in other of my broadcasts, uh, as the technology becomes more complex, as the jobs that people used to have in a mill or in a factory are disappearing because technology replaces it or because it's been shipped overseas uh, for cheaper labor, the life that we live is more complex. I have discussed this on a number of my broadcasts, that my dealing with computers, which are necessary uh, for communication, uh, is of such a level of complexity that there are times I would like to pick up the f- iPhone, the iPad, and the iTouch, uh, and, and the iComputer, throw them out the window, and have a, a truck roll over them. It is extremely difficult to adjust to our society. And that's one of the reasons, I believe, that people don't marry until they're 25, 26, 27, uh, because the amount of education that is increasingly required for more and more people to deal with this complex, socially complex, psychologically complex, and technologically and educationally complex society keeps getting more complex and more difficult to manage. But we are raised one or two at a time. So if we want to define a good education, it seems to me that the more individualized the education will be, the more effective it will be. And there are two psychologists, one of which was mentioned by Dr. Bradshaw, which was the the inventor of the idea of the um, uh, the zone of proximal development, and one that I think should also have been discussed, Piaget, uh, who developed the idea, who demonstrated the idea that the thinking of very young children is organized in very different ways than the thinking of an adult. Young children think literally. Adults, in many areas of their life, not necessarily all, think abstractly. And there is a vast difference between the ability to learn when one thinks literally and and figuratively rather than uh, thinking abstractly. A tremendous difference. Vygotsky created the idea that good education should be one that is scaffolded. That is, the child doesn't know as much as the adult. Hopefully, hopefully, the adult has something to show the child, to demonstrate behaviorally, intellectually, verbally, artistically. But where the child has to meet the adult is at the point of development that that child is. 
so that the scaffold that is built above the child, which represents the developmental level of the teacher, has to be moved in a level proximal to where the child is capable of understanding that particular set of ideas or skills. That is the zone of proximal development. A very simple idea, but one that's magically important. If you have 30, 35, or 40 children in a room, it is very difficult to know where that particular child is intellectually unless you engage them as either an individual or in small groups of children who you have figured out are basically at the same level of zone of proximal development. Does this make any sense? Because if it doesn't make sense, turn off the show. The fact is that we learn by those who know more through more, those who know more of us only if they meet us where we're at intellectually and as I'll discuss in a moment where we're at emotionally because all of us when we enter school already have emotional baggage we have scars we have things we're afraid of things we're excited by an education that's tailored for everybody is an education that's tailored for nobody. This is a critical issue. So that when children learn, they need to be emotionally stimulated in areas of which they're interested, given a why, in quotes, they should learn this particular topic, and when they're taught it, they're taught it by somebody who doesn't stand above them in some wide distance from where they can understand, but someone who meets them and stimulates them at the point at which they're at to be able to grasp the concept, the next level of concept that the teacher wants them to move. And if that happens and the emotional and the intellectual work together, you can develop an individual, or help develop an individual who loves learning. What's interesting, that what they will love to learn will accommodate what all people have to learn in terms of language and history uh, and geography, but will also allow them to develop the individual loves that they will develop art or music, bugs, uh, it will help them find the direction that they will end up being the happiest and most creative in, as well as a good citizen who is not living in rage and anger and wants to tear down the students or tear down the teachers or tear down their fellow, fellow citizens. We can't have politicians continually defining the budget for education. And then, in order to fix things, turn against the teachers, or turn against the administrators, or turn against the parents of these children for being the individuals that they are, and creating budgets and educations that fit all, which like the clothing in a store, anything that fits everybody fits very few, if anybody at all. Some issues related to development. We have boys and girls to, to, together in a class. Boys and girls develop individually, differently. By the sixth grade, many girls have already menstruated and are entering puberty in a rapid way. And many boys uh, are a year at least or two years behind them developmentally. The intellectual development of girls surpasses boys until the boys catch up or until they get to high school 
when girls, as they are often in our society, are taught, smart girls, girls who are smarter and more clever than boys, won't get dates and get dumbed down. There's a tremendous amount of research that shows that. But if you look at the sixth or seventh grade, during that year, a girl will develop much quicker than a boy, entered the grade much quicker, and at the end of June, when they entered in September, the average girl can be two years developmentally ahead of the average boy, and they're given the same curriculum and demanded the same learning without recognition that the zone of proximal development for the boy may very well be way, way behind and different than the zone of proximal development than the girl. So, where are we? What do we need to do? We need to train teachers, and I believe pay them well, and create classes in which individuation can take place. My wife was an early childhood teacher. In fact, my wife was a fabulous teacher uh, whose love of children, and that should be one of the qualities of anybody who works with anybody in any field, that they love what they're doing, uh, rather than this is what they fell into because where they could earn a living. But she loved children and she loved teaching and then became a special ed teacher and was given small classes and learned and developed her own system of teaching in which there was a great deal of individuation. As she would put it, if a child had trouble sitting, she let him stand Boys have trouble sitting for five hours. Girls have less trouble, in part because evolutionarily, boys tend to want to move through space and girls want to move socially and, and, and be involved on a social level that's often very different than boys. To individualize is to recognize the developmental difference between boys and girls and the interest level between boys and girls, which doesn't mean that boys are the ones who learn the math and science and girls don't, and girls learn the arts and crafts and boys don't. They can all learn the same thing, but the same thing as it's individuated, individualized by a teacher who has the capacity and the room and the, the a number of kids where this could take place. Uh, college professors make more than high school teachers who make more than junior high school teachers and public school teachers and early childhood teachers very often make the least. I believe the system on that way is on its head. The earlier our development, the more important individualization and the more important uh, the quality of the care and the intelligence of the care uh, take place. So I believe that early childhood teachers should be paid the most and the classes should be the smallest. And as we go up the line, the classes can get a little larger. Uh, at college now, there are classes of 500. And what you end up with uh, is a lecture by a professor uh, who walks in, lectures and leaves, and graduate students who are not at the level of proximal development of the professor do the discussion with the students in groups that very often are as small as 30 or as large as 30 or 40 who are breaking down the 500 uh, into smaller, more uh, uh, individualized groups. I want to talk about my educational experience as a professor. I taught college. And I was proud to, to be a college professor. Uh, I got a job in a community college at a time, it was 1968, before open admissions in New York took place. Uh, and most of my students were a couple of grade point average lower than the students who went into the city colleges, the, the major colleges, City College, Brooklyn College, Queens College, uh, Richmond College, 
uh, Hunter College in Manhattan, which had its, uh, another wing in the Bronx called Hunter College, which ultimately became Richmond College uh, when the city, city university uh, developed into full bloom. The, the um, 1970, the protests by black students uh, all over the country, uh, the civil rights movement had unleashed uh, a good deal of, of uh, vigorous protest and radicalization of students. Uh, City College, uh, the music school, the music department, the music building was burned to the ground. Students protested, left classes, and the entire university came to a grinding halt. Um, the administration of New York created open admissions, which said that any student who graduates from any high school can find a seat in a college in uh, New York. And the students who were the least poorly prepared were given seats in the community colleges, one of which I taught in Brooklyn. This was a challenge for all of us because many of these students really weren't prepared for college. The zone of proximal development that we were willing to create uh, with our lectures were uh, way beyond the intellectual and emotional ability of many of the students who came to us. There was much prejudice because many of the new students were uh, minority, much teeth grinding, much uh, uh, unhappiness. And for a long time or a period of time, I really was very unhappy uh, that I was in a community college and I didn't have the quality of students that I believed I was worthy of. But I'm really quite proud of myself because as time went on, I realized these students who came to us came to us of their choice. These students were as human as any of the students who were better prepared, who came from more middle-class homes, who came from better homes. Uh, and I began to be aware that the way I was teaching really didn't help any of them uh, or many of them even though I believed and still believe I had a curriculum that was appropriate for a first-year college student. As the years went by, uh, because I was a clinical psychologist and worked with either small groups or most of the time individuals, I began to realize that psychotherapy, and those of you who follow my show know I believe that psychotherapy putting therapy in quotes, has nothing to do with curing or medical medicine. It has to do with a kind of dialogue that exists between human beings who respect and like one another, in which the questions asked by the therapist, because he has to know something and be aware of something that the so-called patient doesn't know, elicit responses that allow the individual who is the patient to think about their life and find a different story to live by. One that's more effective and in my values, more creative, more loving, uh, less angry, where emotions are expressed in a more controlled way. And I began to think more and more, what do I know as a therapist that could help me work with my students. And as the years went by and the budgets in New York were cut over and over and over and my classes got larger and larger, it became more and more difficult to apply the concepts that I learned as a therapist. Now, I'm not talking about diagnosing students because I've long stopped diagnosing anybody. To diagnose is to judge and to prevent understanding, and as I've said many times, um, to understand 
is not to judge. You can understand or judge, but not at the same time. So I want to read from the first couple of pages of a book I wrote called Psychology, Education, Gods, and Humanity. And unfortunately, my wife told me to change the title. I didn't mean gods in a religious sense. I meant human beings who play God and others who are just human beings. Uh, and the story, the title should have been um, uh, Stories We Live By, from education, psychology, etc., or stories told, lessons learned. I think that was what my wife came up. But I was a week late, and the editor of the book uh, refused to change the title. She liked it. So I got a couple of reviews of this book from religious organizations. And anybody who reads this book knows uh, that I am not exactly... Um, looking for orthodox religion to infuse the educational process, just quite the opposite. And so the book never really did well. But as I look through the book and I read occasionally in it, I say, gee, was I able to write this well uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago? And uh, so I want to read where I was as I entered the last decade of my teaching experience. Uh, basically, I began to individualize. I began to uh, have my students take less tests and write more individual papers where I could have a dialogue. It made the job much harder. I wouldn't do this in every class, unfortunately, uh, because I didn't want to uh, uh, create a situation where I really couldn't function. And to really do the job as I wanted to, I could not have four or five classes of 45 or 50 students and individualize uh, and keep my sanity at the same time. Conversations. I'm sorry, Professor, but I didn't read the assignment. I didn't understand very much of it, and I'm not very much interested in it. I tried to read after I got home from work, but I was too, too tired. Why do you make us read so much anyway? My other teachers, especially in high school, did not ask us to read this much. I asked my young student, a woman of 18, how many hours do you work a week? She replies, 35, and emits a long, sad sigh. I say that I can understand why she is so tired and express sympathy that she is caught between the demands of school and work. Is there anyone at home to help you financially or with your studies? She stares at me momentarily and then sensing that I am sincere about her predicament, because I really was, and not about to lecture her on her shortcomings as a student, brings forth a torrent of words wrapped in a wail of pain. I come from Puerto Rico. My mother died when I was little. I had to take care of my little sister. My father owned a store, and my sister and I had to work long hours for my father. We hardly ever went to school. My father didn't pay us because we were his daughters and beat us if we didn't work hard enough. One day, he beat my sister with an iron rod so bad that the next day, she was the same color of green and black as the shirt you are now wearing. We ran away and came to America to live with my aunt, but then she said we couldn't live with her anymore. My sister and I live together, but we don't really make enough to get by. I am scared all the time. As I read this, I can't help but think of Donald Trump, who would have these kids rounded up and brought back to where they were as little children or someplace to live. Incredible. They say financial aid will, aid will be cut and we will have no money for school. I am so scared that I am failing out. Without an education, I know things will never get better. I am so lonely in New York. Last night, I prayed to God to let me die. I don't know what to do. We sat together for a while. After that, the silence broke occasionally by her sobs or a long sigh, sometimes my own. 
She became calmer and more composed and finally said, I feel better now, thank you. I am going home now and I promise to study harder and try to pass. I like your course when I understand what you are talking about. I do not want to fail. I tell her to do her best and then add, whatever happens, she is very brave and I hope she will be kind to herself. I add, you can only be ask the best of yourself and nothing more. If you ever want to talk to me, stop by and we will. She smiles and nearly a year later, she continues to give me the warmest of smiles whenever I see her, although we have not spoken alone since that day. And she leaves telling me she will definitely see me tomorrow in class. I add this not to brag about myself or to express pity for myself or for her, but because when we talk about the zone of proximal development, we're dealing with a whole human being in that zone, many of whom have stories that are very different than the stories we grew up in and many diff very different from the stories of other students in the room. Right. I want to read now about the classroom. I'm going to read a couple of pages of this. The next day, she sits stone-faced, like the majority of her classmates, as I introduce them to the basic concepts of evolutionary psychology. Like my, lesson, my, my lectures here, my harassing you on my program, if you listen, we really can't understand human beings unless we understand the evolutionary roots that took us here to become the basic human beings that we are. There are two students in this section of introductory psychology who seem to be both eager and able to tackle the material. They're the only two who admit to having heard of Charles Darwin, have any idea of the principles of evolution, or have taken a course in biology with a laboratory experience. These same two students are the only ones who have done any of the assigned readings in preparation for the class. I would find out later that only about 50% of the class purchased the book required for the course. My wife, when she went to Hunter College, got her books for free. I paid about $2 a book. Books now can run $130, $140, The psychological withdrawal that begins to take place in the room is almost palpable. I remember in my interaction with the student from the day before and know that she is not alone in living a life in which survival helps shape her skills. She, along with most of her peers, does not possess any way of dealing with this level of academic, verbal, conceptual, conceptual, abstract, and historically situated material. The vision that guides an increasing number of my students is one of surviving a number of another day of reducing or of reducing emotional pain. It is not a vision that motivates the study of ideas for its own sake. It is my turn to feel despair. I have been teaching psychology to undergraduates since 1965, 31 years at that point, and at this moment I have no idea how to proceed. Anxiety comes over me, and I begin to wish I was somewhere else. At the same moment, other emotions well up in me. I feel a sense of freedom and challenge, which on the surface would seem contradictory to the negative emotions that I demand to do something, even if it is to dismiss the class early. Instead, I close my book and ask my students to close theirs and for several moments sit in my desk in quiet repose. After several moments, as the class begins to shift nervously in their seats, I ask, okay, where do you want to begin? What thoughts do you have on the topic, the assigned reading, or anything? After several more moments of silence, a male student ventures, the guy who wrote this book don't write so good. This is followed by another student's comment. He writes really boring stuff. The class sits and waits for me to defend either the writer or what he has written. Only several years ago, they would not have been disappointed. Instead, I ask, does anyone feel differently about the material? And if not, 
where do you all want to go from here? I myself feel rather defeated, and frankly, I don't know how to proceed. I really need your help with this. As I say these words, I find them to be the absolute truth. Genuine elation grows up in me, a kind of joy that rarely, if ever, was something I felt while standing in front of a class. At this point, I understand why Dr. Bradshaw would leave. Because at this point, I wanted to leave. And yet, here I am. I am a professor. I earn my living, most of my living, by teaching. I have a, a pension. I have health insurance. I can't walk away from this because I have a family I have to feed. Most of my colleagues, many of my colleagues, did one of two things. Either they started to teach at some elementary level or not teach really at all and pass students anyway or became bitter and angry that they were caught up in a system in which they had to teach stupid and lazy students. The words stupid and lazy were very often. I asked, does anyone feel they are failing in their responsibilities to the class or themselves in any particular way? What can I help you do that you feel you cannot do for yourselves? The room is uncomfortably quiet for a moment, and then a number of voices begin to respond. Teacher, you are a nice man, but I don't want to be here. I am only here because my father makes me come. He says I go to school or I can't live at home. Another responds, me either. I don't want to work full time at some crappy job, so I come here. But this stuff means nothing to me. When I try to read, I fall asleep. Uh, the rest of my book, which I'm not going to read to you, was my way of trying to bridge an emotional gap between me and my students so that I can create some kind of love of learning where they will feel that they can make an effort at some level where they can go because the school did give all kinds of tutorial help and other kinds of help where they would be a participant in the learning process. And that is something that when we discuss the zone of proximal development is critical. It's not merely the teacher who lives in the zone as a human being, but the student and motivation, emotional connection, affection, respect between the teacher and the student, mutual respect and mutual affection generates activity so that when the student takes a step and moves into some area that they never have moved in before and understands something they never understood before, and experience that moment of joy of learning that they're not the same person anymore. And it was that that kept me alive as a teacher and as a therapist, where the therapist is in quotes. Because in every class over the years, there were two or three or four or five or six of students who would say at one point, I got it, I understand it. At that moment, they have stepped out of the, of the self that they were in into a brand new self that sees higher and wider and more and produces that feeling of absolute joy when one can look back on who one was and be proud and happy about who now one is. I'm going to finish up with a couple, again, of personal stories. I always had problems with math. When I was in the third or fourth grade, I was sick for a week with some kind of a virus. And when I got back to school, uh, the teacher had taught a lesson on double multiplication. This was not six times 32, but 34 times 158. In other words... There were two multipliers and three multi or four multiple plans. And it took me a couple of weeks to catch up, 
But I had a problem psychologically with math all through school. When I was in high school, I decided to become a chem major when I got to college because of a teacher named Sam Troik, who every year was asked to be a principal but turned it down because he adored teaching. And he was a man that I wanted to model myself after. And I know he was one of the two or three teachers that made me want to be a teacher myself. I got to college, and the first course I had to take was calculus. By that time, I could be a fairly good math student. Um, <clears throat> I could understand uh, geometry. I understood algebra. Now I was in calculus. And in algebra, x equals something. But in calculus, it's f of x. <clears throat> and I can't describe to you <clears throat> how I could not grasp the idea of what f of x. Had I just ignored the f and said x equals, I would have been fine and I would have done fairly well in calculus and probably today might have been a chemist or lived my life as a chemist rather than as a psychologist. I drowned in that course. And the next term, if I had continued as a chemistry major, I would have had to take differential equations in calculus. At the end of the term, uh, I, I should add, I used to smoke in room. We all smoked in our classroom. Hard to imagine we ever did that, but we did. And I had a teacher who I now recognize, I recognize sometime afterwards, must have been a part-timer. He was a uh, an adjunct professor. I didn't know much about him, except that I liked him very much. And he used to bum cigarettes off me. At the end of the term, he said to me, uh, I can give you the D you deserve or a C, and a D you deserve and give you back a carton of cigarettes, or we forget the carton, and I give you a gentleman's C. I could have hugged him. I loved him. I took the C. And I changed my major to psychology. Fast forward a couple of years when I had to teach, I had to learn statistics, which is mathematics, but it wasn't called math. And there was a particular chapter on the standard error of measurement, which has to do with standard deviations. And I sat and I sat, I went to my professor, I asked some questions, and it took me about a week and all of a sudden there was that aha moment. Listener, do you remember your aha moments where suddenly there's a breakthrough and you understand something that you didn't understand before? And while you don't say it at the time, life can never be the same because the self, that which experiences the world, now experiences the world in a different way. You have invented and created and transformed into a new self. That, to me, is the joy of education. That, to me, is what a good teacher helps students do. Recognizing individuality, recognizing the evolutionary development in all of us, recognizing the zone of proximal development, the, standard, the, st the stages of emotional and intellectual development, and somehow creating a room where individuality and respect allows the individual to make some kind of a move from the self that they came in with to a self that they leave with that has, at least in part, a love of education, a respect for oneself, and a hope, a joyous hope in their own future. Education doesn't do that often. It was only towards the end of my particular uh, uh, time as a teacher, almost 40 years, that I really understood and was able to implement this kind of an education in my room, even if it meant bending and twisting what the standards of college education was supposed to be. Uh, this can create all kinds of argument. Uh, isn't it our job to let only the best and brightest uh, into the system? 
On the other hand, aren't we all human beings who are worthy of this kind of respect and attention? I'm out of time. I went an entire hour. I don't think I need to do any more. Nobody called in. Uh, I don't think anybody is here. And uh, I will end my episode now. I will go have some dessert, watch a little television. Good night and goodbye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.